Welcome to Count Me In with Della and Deanna. Today, we feature the first installment of a two-part conversation with the mathematician and musician, Dr. Eugenia Cheng, a scientist in residence at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, a concert pianist, and the author of several books, including How to Bake Pie, an edible exploration of the mathematics of mathematics, the art of logic, how to make sense in a world that doesn't, and X plus Y, a mathematician's manifesto for rethinking gender. Eugenia was born in the UK, earned three degrees from Cambridge, including a PhD in category theory, and now lives in Chicago, where she is dedicated to bringing mathematics to a wider audience. In this deeply personal conversation, we talk about the importance of doing things for other people, of the formative experiences in childhood, and of unexpected life experiences that shape us. So please join us as we talk with Eugenia. Hey, good morning, Eugenia. Hi, Hi, Eugenia. Hello. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Um, What are we pulling you away from? What would you be doing if you weren't talking to us? Oh, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell us where you are in the world right now. Are you home in Chicago? Yes. Okay. So we like to start by asking you to tell your story. Mm-hmm. And what we'd like to do is ask you to start with basically little Eugenia from like zero to 18 mm-hmm. or whenever you went to college. Mm-hmm. So should I just start? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I always loved math and I was very lucky because my mother is mathematical and she always talked math with me at home. And it was not like, now we're going to do times tables, nothing like that. It was just the math that's around us that's cool and interesting and that sparks curiosity and gives us things to think about. And that is why I think when I went to kindergarten when I was five, I already knew I loved math, but it wasn't the same as the math that we did at school. And so then I did get a little disillusioned because math at school was not as interesting as Mm -hmm. what I knew math was really. And the thing that was great for me was that I always held on to that belief that math was more interesting than the stuff at school that had right and wrong answers and that was long lists of questions that you had to answer and get the right answer. But I was also lucky because I could do those things as well. And so... I was successful at the school math because I had already been doing it at home. So children who've been introduced to numbers and basic arithmetic when they're two and three years old, of course, they're very much better at it when they're five Mm -hmm. than the children who are first introduced to it when they're five. And so they just start ahead and they kind of keep being ahead. And in a way, that's that was my first sense that things were sort of unfair. I could see that. I could see that other children were behind, not because they were less good at it, just that they'd never seen it before. And it was really the same with reading. So I, I was reading at home by myself. So by the time I got to kindergarten, I was already reading books, whereas other people hadn't even met letters yet. And so there was this very stark mm. divide. And it was, it was something that stuck with me. Um, through the whole of my schooling that I I was definitely aware that I had done things at home with my parents that other children didn't hadn't had the chance to do and I always felt compelled to help my friends and that was a big driving force through through my all of my schooling that 
I found that I was able to help my friends understand things that they didn't understand yet and that they were grateful and that this seemed like an important thing for me to do to help them. Mm -hmm. It was also, it was definitely encouraged by my piano teacher who um, very much instilled in me a sense of how important it is to help others to understand things. And also the, the headmistress, the principal of my elementary school, I had this very interesting, upsetting and formative experience of being really told off by her. And she was maybe a little heavy handed about it, but the lesson really stuck with me. And what happened was that, that I played the piano and the violin from, I started the violin when I was three and I started the piano when I was five and I played in the elementary school orchestra, but I was because I'd started so early, I was quite ahead of a lot of children who only just started and were not playing very much. And I was quite frustrated. And my friend and I, who sat next, we sat together at the front of the first violins. We were kind of stroppy nine-year-olds and we declared that we were too good for this and that we weren't going to do it anymore. And we were, we'd had enough. We're too good for this. And a teacher overheard us. We were in the playground and sent us to see the principal who who um, told us that we were too big for our own boots mm-hmm. and that we were going to carry. She, she laid down the law and said, we were not going to leave that orchestra. We were going to play in it and we were going to play in it for the good of the other people in the orchestra. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was mortified. I remember going into the bathroom and crying my eyes out because I felt ashamed and it was true, she was a bit heavy-handed about it, but I was ashamed of having been so, well, arrogant about it. And, mm-hmm. and I completely took on board that lesson that there are, it's important to do things for other people and that it's more important to do them for other people than for your own glory. And I think I've kept that with me, although I also remember how mortified I was about it. So I also took with me another story about how to tell people things and how to not do it in a way that makes <laughs> them feel terrible about themselves. <laughs> can I ask you a question two things stuck with me about what you just said you said your mother was mathematical I'd like to know more about what that looked like um you don't often hear someone say that my mother was mathematical yeah she's she's really the mathematical logical one in the family and uh, my father is a child psychiatrist and he's really the intuitive emotional and it's interesting because that is, it's sort of the other way around from gender stereotypes. And I think that was very helpful to me mm-hmm. when I was growing up. Um, also, I don't have any brothers. I have a sister. And so there were no, there was really no gender stereotyping anywhere. Um, my, my mother was very successful academically at school. And however, because of the era it was, she kind of gave that up to follow my father in his career. Mm-hmm. And um, they grew up and were educated in Hong Kong. But my father needed to go to London to finish his special specialization in child psychiatry because that was the center of the world. And my mother had a job, I believe it was in uh, training people to use the first wave of computers in banking in Hong Kong. Um, but she quit that to just pick everything up and follow my father to England where she'd never been. And it was supposed to be for six months or something, but then they never left. And she uh, resumed her career only when I was five. And 
then she became somebody who she worked in the city. She commuted one woman in amid thousands of men in suits while my father was working as a child psychiatrist locally. So he was at home more and he did things like take us to school and he got home from work earlier than she did. And he did the grocery store shopping and often got dinner ready before she came home. And then we all piled into the car to pick her up from the station. So there was this definite gender reversal mm-hmm. um, of, uh, especially at the time, it was very unusual for anything like that to be happening. And my mother, her degree was in math and chemistry. And so she, she doesn't consider herself to be a mathematician. But then after, after I was um, in preschool, she wanted to get back into a career that was intellectually fulfilling for her. Mm -hmm. And at the time it was, it was, I mean, it still is now, but it's difficult to get back into a career after a career break in a new country. She, and so she went to do a master's in operational research mm-hmm. before going back into her career. And so that's, um, she, it, it was always a very mathematical, there was a lot of mathematical basis to all, all the work that she did. I never really understood what she did, honestly. I still probably don't quite, I haven't quite got to grips with <laughs> quite what she did, but Certainly, she was mathematical enough that she um, encouraged us in math, valued math all the time, and just loved it so that she would be show us things that were fascinating mm-hmm. all the time. And uh, she taught us how to do programming. I started mm-hmm. programming when I was four because um, she thought that was an important skill, which it was. I was really good at programming when I was four, and I never really got any better. Uh, <laughs> I was only good for a four-year-old and now I'm just not that great. <laughs> you know, I loved that program where you go 10, print hello, 20, go to 10. <laughs> and I was so fascinated by that. I can just do that every day. <laughs> That's it. Okay, one more little question that that just makes me. I was really good at programming when I was four. I just love that. You mentioned your piano teacher, and your piano teacher encouraged you to help others. Tell me how the, how this took place. She, my piano teacher, Christine Pembridge, was a very formidable lady, and she was definitely a mentor and not just a piano teacher. And she always encouraged us to help each other so she would have these um events in her home where all of her pupils would get together and listen to each other play and she would she was also maybe a little heavy-handed about it but she insisted that we all criticize each other and so even when we were five we had to listen to the 18 year olds and think of something to say about what they had just played so that we would listen and contribute so and so that all our contributions were worthwhile. And so she always made sure that to feel that even when we were five, we could say something worthwhile about the people who were, were 18. But as I grew up, she taught me very specifically. And I remember one day she said to me, you're at the point now where the younger girls at school are going to start looking up to you mm-hmm. as a role model. And she said, you need to decide what kind of role model you're going to be. Mm-hmm. And she said this to me when I was about 12. And it got me really, really thinking about that. But she, she definitely was a vocational educator and she was set to have 
a quite high-flying career as a concert pianist, but then she had uh, an early onset of arthritis in her hands. And so that ended that quite soon. But she really threw herself into education and she uh, really believed in the principle that the point of a teacher is to teach themselves out of a job, basically, to, to, to show students how to teach themselves so that they don't need the teacher anymore. Mm-hmm. And that was a principle that she passed on to me and that she, she really believed in the whole thing as an important contribution and that that was a, an important contribution that she was making. She wasn't just teaching us piano. She was teaching us about life and about how to pass things on to the principles of how to pass things on to future generations and why, why to pass them on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So young Eugenia, what did you want to be when you grew up? What, what were the plans? I wanted to, to be many things. I wanted to be a newsreader. I wanted to, uh, there was a, there was a children's show when I was growing up and I think it's still there and everyone in the UK knows about it. Probably nobody in the US knows about it. It's called Blue Peter. And it's a terribly wholesome educational show where they have some hosts and they do a range of things, including they cook, they show how to cook things, they make stuff. And so there was a lot of, of kind of basically recycling. So how to use household items and turn them into other things. And so <laughs> you would take toilet rolls and turn them into pencil pots and this kind of stuff. And how to look after pets, how to do gar- grow vegetables in the garden and also charity work. So there was an ongoing feature of they would take children out to do charity work. Um, and so it was all very, and very creative. And so I wanted to be a Blue Peter presenter, um, definitely. <laughs> and because I, and I, the part I really wanted to do was to demonstrate how to make things. Mm-hmm. And I used to pretend in my room, I'd sit at my table and I would make something and I would give a running commentary. So I would be sitting there explaining to an imaginary audience how to make things. So I, I wanted to do that. Um, I did also want to get a PhD in math and I don't know why I wanted that. And I don't know what I thought it was, but my best explanation of this is that for a while, my mother had a job. I think she did accounts for a gas station called PDH. And I think that I thought that meant she had a PhD and that I wanted one as well because my mother did. (laughs) (laughs) So it's one of those kind of, correct conclusion from faulty argument. So in your, in your pursuit of these careers, how did you continue with your education? Well, I knew that I wanted to go and do a mathematics degree at Cambridge. And the, the reason I knew that was that I had heard that that was the best place for math in England, definitely better than Oxford. And so I wanted to go there. And I knew it was going to be difficult. But I, it, I was very lucky because I had a scholarship to a girls' boarding school. And so my whole high school, all my teenage years, was in a girls' environment. And so we weren't subject to gender stereotypes then either. I had no gender stereotypes in my whole childhood. And I think that's a very important part of, of the fact that I was able to become sure of who I was without those pressures. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I even really knew that there was a stereotype saying that girls can't do math. And, and, and I remember when I was about six, having a fierce argument with a friend of mine because we were playing superheroes. And I said I was going to be Superman. 
And she said, you can't be Superman. You're a girl. You have to be Supergirl. And I said, I can be anything I want. And <laughs> I had been taught that I could be anything. That, and that included Superman. So there. And, <laughs> and I, took that, I took that with me. I, we were t- definitely taught at school. And I was taught at home that, that we, could be, we could be anything. But, um, and, but I also knew... I had a math teacher at school who was very realistic and did, she did warn me that the boys, especially from some of the really pushy boys schools in England, would have been trained so hard in advanced math that they would just be ahead by training. But she, did, she said to me that it wasn't anything to do with innate ability. It's just about training. And I think I really took this on board to know that a lot of outcomes in math, especially when in exams are involved, are just about how much you've been trained. It's nothing to do with anything innate or biological. Mm-hmm. And so I worked really hard to try and catch up with that imaginary standard because I didn't had no idea what the standard was. But they have, to get into Cambridge, you have to take special exams that adjust the Cambridge. And it's because the standard math exams aren't really interesting or stretching enough for them to tell anything about potential mathematical ability. And so they have these other exams called the step papers, which are more interestingly searching questions, less of the usual algorithms where you've been taught this algorithm, now I'm going to do this algorithm with different numbers. It's more kind of, it doesn't necessarily require more uh, knowledge of the subject, but it requires different ways of thinking and more longer thought processes. And it was hard. And I worked really hard through my last two years of high school, practicing those questions. And nobody helped me because my teacher couldn't do them herself. And so she always said to me, well, if, if, if you can't do it, I can't do it. So I can't help you. And if I can do it, you've already done it. So that's no help either. But I will acknowledge that the thing that was helpful Although I didn't get help with the actual questions because I, I later met people who had teachers who just drilled them in how to answer all of those questions for ages. But what I did have was I was instilled with a belief that I could do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was definitely instilled with the belief that if I worked really hard at it, I would get better at it. And I, in, I mean, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but I have helped other students prepare, try and prepare for those exams. And I have tried to convince them that, that it just takes practice and that you can do that by yourself and you don't have to be taught it. But if they are inherently already convinced that they are behind and that they don't have a background of being given, the, being encouraged to believe that they can do it, they're so convinced that other people have all these advantages over them, and they, which they do, Mm-hmm. Um, then that that can really get in the way if you really, I think that 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 confidence that I was given by that education was definitely important for me to carry out. But I, I mean, I, I that was when I started working, studying really hard late into the night um, because if you're thinking about trying to solve the problem and it's 11 p.m. and you're really interested in it. You just keep going and then at 2 a.m. and then it's 3 a.m. And luckily I've never needed much sleep, but that's when I first got really excited about staying up all night thinking about, thinking about math. So does this mean you went to Cambridge? I did go to Cambridge. 
And when I got there, I did discover that there were boys from boys' schools who had been pushed really far ahead. And luckily, it wasn't a shock to me. I think a lot of, and I see this with students here as well, but that a lot of students, if they're going to go and do math at a famous university, they show up and maybe they have always been the best person in their class, in their school at math. They are the, 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 the best that they've, they're just used to being the best. And then it's a really big shock to them when they get into an environment where they're really not the best anymore. And sometimes, sometimes students don't recover from that shock. It's just too shocking. Um, and they have thrived so much on being the best. And so I'm really grateful that my teacher prepared me for that because I was absolutely prepared to be the worst. I was completely prepared to be the worst and I wasn't the actual worst. And so it was kind of, it was sort of encouraging. Like, oh, I'm not the actual worst person here, as it turns out. And, and that, that gave me something to think about for the future as well, because later on I started doing a lot of work to try and help people with the transition from high school into university. And because I did, I was lucky to get to go to a, a, a school that had great advantages over the kind over schools that some people get to go to. And that those psychological things are a lot of the difference that, that being just psychologically prepared for the jump made a huge difference to me. Whereas people who are completely overwhelmed, it's very difficult to study successfully if you're emotionally overwhelmed mm-hmm. by your by your surroundings and by feeling like you are the worst person there. Mm-hmm. So I I got there and I was not the actual worst person there. And and actually I felt like I was not even in the the, the, the sort of least successful part because they gave us some some problems to work on over the summer before we arrived. And we had a sort of introductory week before the, the term really started. And they gave us these problems to work on. And I just set my mind to doing all of them. I didn't feel that there was any other option except doing all of them. Mm-hmm. And when we got there, I just it turned out that only two of us had succeeded in doing all of them. And so, and so I thought, oh, well, and of course, I don't know how long everyone else spent. Mm-hmm. It's possible that I just spent longer because I... I felt that there was no option. And there are, there are some themes in there to do with, you know, because I felt that I was on the back foot because I was going to be one of the very few women in there. I didn't want to show myself up. And so, whereas maybe if you're really, really super confident and that you're completely blasé, then you're like, oh, it doesn't matter if I haven't done all of them. I felt like it would be, it would be an unsustainable catastrophe if I showed up having been, not having done all of them. <laughs> and um, and so I did whatever work was necessary to to do all of them, and then that gave me a little boost when I got there. And I thought, oh, actually, I I can keep up with this situation, but it took an awful lot of sweat and blood to do so, especially when I was surrounded by these honestly quite arrogant, patronizing male students who, first of all, had covered the entire first year of the degree at school already. And secondly, would never admit to struggling with anything whatsoever. <laughs> so they would just boast about how easy everything was. Um, meanwhile, I was sweating blood and tears to try and keep up. But the when we got into the second year and the third year, it's a three-year degree in Cambridge, they started, a lot of them started struggling because they 
didn't know how to work hard because they'd never done it. Mm-hmm. And because they'd coasted through the beginning of it, confident about their own abilities, they'd done it all before. And then when it actually got hard, it's the kind of thing where they loved math because it was easy. And some people do love math because it's easy, but it doesn't stay easy. At some point, it's not <laughs> going to be easy anymore. And that's when it, that's when you really see what's going on. And those people kind of started crashing out when it started getting hard. And some of them carried on, but, but gradually many of those people who had so, um, so daunt had been so daunting to me when I was an undergraduate, they all fell away. And many of them, uh, found that after doing their PhD, they made it through their PhD, but then they didn't want to do any more, or they crashed out during their first postdoc and decided they wouldn't, wouldn't want to do any more. And it's, and I still mar- sit down and marvel sometimes at, at those people who were so arrogant and patronizing to me as undergraduates and saying how easy everything was. And they're not mathematicians now, and I am. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you find a, a community where you felt comfortable and you belonged at, at um, Cambridge? I mean, yes, but it wasn't really among mathematicians. Mm-hmm. Um, I had I had f- friends who I could discuss the problems with because, of course, when when it's hard, which it is, you need to talk to people about it, and you you um, work on problems together to try and get through it. But I really found a community among musicians. I'm a musician as well, and I was very involved with music. And the the university system is so different there; it's it's unrecognizably different. But in order to get a degree, all we had to do was take four exams at the end of three years. That was all we had to do. But of course, in order to pass those, to do well in those four exams, you had to do an awful lot of stuff to get there. But there was no registering for courses. There was no curriculum. There's no homework. I mean, there was there were problem sets, but the problem sets were just to help us understand. Nothing is assessed. There's no midterms. There's no, there's no exams. So we had exams at the end of each year, but they didn't count for anything. They were just to give us an idea of how we were getting on. In the end, the only thing that counts are these four three-hour exams at the end of the third year. And they're not separated by subject. So you go to whatever courses you feel like, and then there's one question on each course on every paper. And so some people went to 20 courses and answered questions on 20 subjects. I couldn't do that because it was too hard. So I went to five courses and I answered questions on five courses, but every, every course had one question on each paper. And so it's a completely unrecognizable system, but it also meant that during the rest of the year, there's a lot of flexibility to do other things. And when I first moved to the U S and saw this system where you have homework practically every day, and it counts towards your final grade. And then there's two midterms and a final. And I just thought, how, how do you ever do anything else? And how do you ever learn anything? Because I never understood any math until a year later. It took me a year to absorb what was going on. And then so I would take a course starting in October that would end in, in early December. It was eight-week terms. And then I would spend the vacation trying to understand it because I didn't understand anything during the semester. And I still didn't understand it. And then when the exams would be in June. So you'd spend April and May going over those courses again and trying to understand them more. And it was typically only in the last couple of weeks of weeks of May that I would go, oh, wait, oh, now I understand it. And so I, I sometimes I think I just would have failed in the US because <laughs> you have to be able to do things so fast. And it, t- it would take me a year. To, I mean, I don't know, because of course, if I was forced to be in that system, maybe I'd have been able to do it faster and I'd have gone and got help because... If I hadn't understood it fast enough, I'd have gone and got help. 
Um, whereas in the system I was in, I didn't go and get help because I thought, well, I've got a whole year. I'll keep trying to understand it. But it did mean that there was a lot of flexibility for doing all sorts of other things that are not in any way set. And so all the music that we did was just, we just wanted to play music, so we played music. And there were orchestras and choirs and concerts and people did things like set up newspapers. I wrote for the student newspaper and I wrote classical music reviews for the student newspaper and I ran the music society and I organized concerts. And when I first came to the US, I was really shocked by the fact that choir was something that you would do for credit and it would count towards your degree and that people would go to concerts and get attendance slips because they needed that for credit and that that would count towards their degree. And I thought, this is really strange. I couldn't get my head around it at all. And I've sort of got used to it now. I still, I still think it's strange, but um, it was just so different. And I think that I just don't think I'd have got on well in in the US system so I'm kind of I'm kind of glad that I uh well that I had the education in the system that I did Mm -hmm. so tell us a little bit about how you made your transition because you have a really interesting and kind of different career Mm -hmm. tell us about how you made that transition from school to interest I'll say interesting career and you can talk more about all the details of it Sure. Well, I wanted to be a mathematician. And so I did all the things that you have to do to become a mathematician, which is compete like mad to get into the most prestigious PhD program that you can, and then compete like mad to try and get the most prestigious postdocs you can. And then typically uproot yourself all around the world to move because prestigious postdocs consist of moving country because because if you stay in the same place, then it's not considered prestigious enough, especially if you're from a small country like the UK. So you have to go and do your time in the US. And so um, the, I, it's a little, un, it's, it's considered a little unusual to stay in the same place to do a PhD as, um, so I did my undergrad PhD and my first postdoc in Cambridge. But the thing is that category theory, which is my field of research, it really has a big center in Cambridge and there. And so that is a very strong reason to stay there. It's not like, um, there are obvious other places where you should definitely go. There are some other places, but there are definitely strong reasons to do a lot of category theory in Cambridge. Certainly mm-hmm. at the time, it's, there's more of it now. There's more of it in the US, but at the time it was definitely, it was definitely justified. And so I did that. And then I got, the, the, then I got offered a postdoc at the University of Chicago. And that was obviously the most prestigious thing I was offered. So luckily, I didn't have to think about whether I wanted to go there. Because if I'd had to think about it, I wouldn't have wanted to go at all. I... The only place in the US I knew was New York because my sister moved there when she was 18 and I didn't like New York at all. And I thought Chicago would be like New York and that I would not like it. And so I thought, well, I'll just go there and I'll, I'll just work really hard for two years and not really have a life and, um, and it'll be good for my career. And then about two days later, I discovered I really loved Chicago, that it wasn't anything like New York. <laughs> I had the greatest time ever. And that, and that I, though I made tons of friends and could do tons of music because I thought when I left Cambridge, I would, there would never be an environment where I could just play music mm-hmm. um, without being a full-time professional musician. And then I found that in Chicago, I could do that. And mm. I was astonished. I didn't realize that was going to happen. And then the next thing I, I then I got a postdoc at the University of Nice. It was a Marie Curie mm-hmm. European mobility research fellowship 
to encourage the mobility of researchers around Europe when there was still a Europe and or rather UK was still part of that Europe. And, and the thing is that actually, before I moved to Chicago that time, I already had a permanent job at the University of Sheffield. It was, they offered me the job and deferred it because they knew that I had um, a postdoc lined up at the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And then I deferred it for another year. So I deferred it by three years because then I could spend a year in Nice as well. And so it was my postdocs, I was really lucky. My postdocs were very relaxing because I already had my permanent job lined up, mm -hmm. which meant because, you know, it takes a year to apply for jobs. And so if you have a one year postdoc, usually you spend the entire year just applying for jobs. That's mm -hmm. it. And you can't really get anything done. It's a terrible system. And so the fact that I already had it lined up meant I could spend those three years just doing research and doing teaching and having fun, honestly. And um, the reason that the University of Sheffield was prepared to postpone my arrival by three years was because of the, this ludicrous research assessment system in the UK where there's a cycle. There was at the time. I don't know if it's still like this. There's a seven-year cycle. So every seven years, they, the, the research council or whatever reviews all the research output from the previous seven years of the university to decide how much funding to give them for the next seven years. Oh, wow. And so as long as I showed up one day before that deadline, they could count all of my research from the previous seven years, um, even though I hadn't been there. Oh, wow. So basically they got to count my research for free mm -hmm. because I hadn't been at a different UK university. I think if I had been at other UK universities, then that wouldn't have been, but because I was out of the country, they got to count all of it without having paid me anything. And I'm pretty sure that's why they were happy for me to do that. <laughs> Um, and so then I arrived at the University of Sheffield to start my full-time job. And I was really, that's what I really wanted. When I was in Chicago, I did think about it because I thought, wow, I had a really good time in Chicago. And maybe if I had applied for jobs then, because when I applied the first time, it was early in my career. And if I had applied at the end of my postdoc, I had more research to my name. I had more prestigious CV. Maybe I'd have got something and then I could have, maybe I could have stayed in the US. But the thing is, and it's hard for me to remember this now because it's a long time ago, I really wanted to go back to the country where I had, where I had got everything from the education system and to give back to the education system that had given me everything. Mm -hmm. I really wanted mm -hmm. to go back and give back to that system. That I, and I wanted to contribute, not just as a researcher, but I wanted to contribute to the university policy. I wanted to get embedded in policymaking. And I, what I wanted to do was become part of the fabric of a university structure, building the shape of a university, and then eventually to contribute to policymaking at the government level. That's what I really wanted to do from a position of having a university post. That mm -hmm. was my, that was my goal. And it didn't turn out like that because I, I was so miserable I was so extraordinarily miserable in that job. And it was a combination of various things. One is that the government was destroying the education system as I knew it, which is a whole other story. But the other part was that I did not ever feel accepted or appreciated in my job. And I did not know if it was because I was female because I was not white, because I was young, because they 
perceive me to be a southerner in the north of England, uh, despite the fact that I am in fact an immigrant. Uh, I speak like a southerner and I grew up in the south. And so I got lumped in with being a southerner. And there was a lot of skepticism about that. And I didn't like doing the things that they liked doing. I didn't like going for walks in the Peak District and drinking beer in a pub. I preferred listening to and playing classical music and drinking wine. And that was, that meant that I didn't fit in. Mm-hmm. Together, together with the fact that I cared a bit too much about teaching, and that was not appreciated in a research-driven university, and I wanted to um, think about how we could do things better. And yes, it's possible that I was not as diplomatic as I might have been about it. I don't know. But but it was definitely received as criticism. And of course, mm-hmm. if you see ways to do things of do things better or suggest ways of doing things differently, then that can always be taken as criticism. And it kind of is because, because you're saying here is something that I think we could do better, which means that we're not doing it better. And, mm-hmm. but there was, a, there was a huge resistance to anything that I wanted to do, any innovation, because I wanted to innovate all the time. I felt like the education system was just so flawed. Everything we were doing was flawed. The way we were teaching was flawed. Why are we delivering lectures to 250 students at a time? What even is the point of doing that? Why do we give them homework? And the amount of grading time we assign for their homework is about 30 seconds per student per week. That's how much we are paying grad students to do. How does that even help our students? Mm -hmm. And and so I wanted to try and move up because I've sat in lectures where I was one of 250 students and you sit there and you, you scribble notes as fast as possible and you don't learn anything. And then you go away and try and understand it later. And then it might as well be a video. And my principle for giving lectures myself was if I might as well be a video, then, then I might in fact as well be a video. If I'm going to stand here live as a human, I've got to do something that has to be not a video. Otherwise (laughs) we should just make videos. Mm -hmm. And that has, when I first started teaching, because there weren't videos, my principle was if I could, if I could just be a book, then I shouldn't be here. I have to be more than just a book. And then because technology improved, the, the bar is higher. Now you have to be better than a video and videos are great. And I, so I started making videos as well mm-hmm. to help me think about what can be different about live teaching. But this was all very, this was not, um, this was not received well. Of course, when some other people started suggesting similar things after me, it was younger people. They were maler and whiter. It was celebrated. (laughs) Oh, funny that. And so it's the kind of thing where you can't prove that people are being sexist and or racist. But did I want to stay around to even try and prove it? No, I didn't because I, I was also unhappy socially. I didn't feel like I was having a good time socially. Mm-hmm. I was, um, everyone kept saying, oh, it's really friendly here. But then I would do things like walk up the street and people would yell racist things at me. Oh, and, um, and not really bad, you know, it wasn't sort of life-threatening. Mm-hmm. But people would just yell things at me like, oh, I bet you don't even speak English, do you? Or, mm-hmm. Or like ching chang chong, or mm-hmm. you know, go back to where you came from, that kind of stuff. And terrible. Um, 
And so, yes, it may well be very friendly as long as you look a certain way and then everyone is very friendly. Um, and so that's when I, I started really thinking about what I would do. And it, it did, it, unfortunately, it got very bad, which is why I decided I had to do something about it. If it had only been moderately bad, I might have just sort of vaguely put up with it, but it got really, really bad. And so I thought, well, what would I do if there were no constraints? And I find this to be a useful way to think about what your values are and what you really care about. Like if there were no practical logistical constraints, what would you do? Mm -hmm. And if there were no constraints about money, visas, borders, and it was very obvious to me what I would do. And that was that I would come back to Chicago and do something. Mm -hmm. I was just sure that I could do something in Chicago. And the thing is that, in fact, there are constraints because I need money to live and I would need a visa to come back to Chicago. Uh And, And so I brainstormed how I could make that happen. Mm-hmm. And I came up with three ideas. One idea was to ask for a teaching job at the University of Chicago. Um, and another idea was to ask for a job with the Pianoforte Foundation in Chicago, with whom I'd done some work. They were growing. They'd started off as a one-person organization, and they were growing. And I thought, well, maybe they can give me a job. And my other idea was to become a um, media mathematician, so a public mathematician. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I asked the University of Chicago for a job and they said, oh, we don't do that. And it turns out that all their teaching jobs were just for wives of professors. So oh. that they could, and so that they could um, use that as an enticement to get male professors. Oh, well, and we'll give your wife a teaching job. So there was that. Wow. And, what and year was this? <laughs> <laughs> this was uh, 2013. Oh, my. And, and they looked at me and they said, why do you want to come back to Chicago? Are you trying to solve a two-body problem? As if the only possible reason that I might want to move was to follow my husband, who mm-hmm. didn't exist. And mm-hmm. that it couldn't be just that you want to out of your own volition and, and self-agency. It's surely the only reason you could want to do something like that is to follow some man. So mm-hmm. that didn't happen. And then the Pianoforte Foundation said that they didn't have any more money to hire another person. And so I thought, well, I'd better become a media mathematician. <laughs> and, and so, so I, um, I wrote my first book, How to Bake Pie, which was called Cakes, Custard and Category Theory in the UK. And then the University of Chicago, somehow at the same time, the University of Chicago wrote to me and said, actually, we've got a crisis with our calculus cohort for next year. We've got too many math majors. Could you come for a year and just teach calculus for a year? And I was like, oh, funny that. I thought that you never did that. And then, and then the Pianoforte Foundation said, oh, actually, our manager has to leave because her husband got a job somewhere else. So could you come and be our manager? Like, oh, well, now all three things have happened all at once. And so I took the, I took the book contract and I took the job at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And that gave me a year. And I thought, okay, now I have a year to figure out what to, how to do this next. And what happened in that year was that um, the book got, because originally it was just in the UK and then it got sold in the US and mm-hmm. it did pretty well. And that was a really good buffer because I didn't want to just leap out into the void. People say, oh, it was a really big risk you took leaving a tenured job. And the thing is I didn't because I wait, made sure that I had things lined up. And so that gave me a 
really good buffer. And then I got um, this job at the School of the Art Institute. So the the University of Chicago thing def- had a definite end. And I, everything was about, I was trying to apply for a green card. Well, I was applying for a green card. It's a very long process. If you're doing it not through employment, I was doing it as what they call an alien of extraordinary ability. And so I had to prove <laughs> that my ability was so extraordinary <laughs> that, and this involved a huge quantity of documentation. And it was taking a really long time. And so it looked like my visa was going to expire. Everything was about to collapse. And then this opportunity came up at the School of the Art Institute to teach math to art students. And I thought, well, this is my dream job. This is it. This is actually my dream job because I felt that when I was teaching calculus to math majors, there were many people who could teach calculus to math majors. Mm-hmm. And there are indeed many people who teach calculus to math majors. And that if I stopped doing it, somebody else would just step in to the vacuum and just start teaching calculus to math majors. But I just felt that not so many people are explaining abstract math to art students mm-hmm. and, or, or even want to, and, or even able to if they even did want to. Or, and not so many people really care about explaining abstract mathematics to people who have been traumatized by math in the past. And so I felt that that was a more important thing for me to do because fewer people would do it if I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, together with wanting to put myself out there as a role model. Because when I was growing up, I didn't need female role models. I didn't need role models who looked like me because I had been so brought up to believe I could be anything. that So it didn't matter if a role model was male because I could do anything a man could do. Mm-hmm. But I know that many or possibly most girls do not grow up with that conviction given to them. And it's definitely to do with how I was brought up. It's not something that was just, is just inherent. Mm-hmm. And so I eventually, I wish we didn't need female role models because I wish everybody knew. And, and the thing is that men need female role models too, because men also need to understand that women can do anything because right. it's no good. If women go around believing they can do anything, but men still believe they can't, that's no good. Right. Everybody <laughs> needs to understand it. And so I thought, well, I wish we didn't need female role models, but while we do, I'd better put myself out there as mm-hmm. one. And especially because most of the people talking about math in public all look the same as each other. And mm-hmm. all the people who are portrayed as mathematicians in things like Hollywood movies, they're all, you know what they're like. They're all older white men who are a bit strange, who can't make eye contact, who don't have any friends. and, and <laughs> a bit weird and I just and of course if if you portray that as what mathematicians are like then people who aren't like that might go oh well, I'm not like that so maybe I'm not cut out to be a mathematician and then people who are like that feel will feel drawn to it and go oh I can fit in in that community and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that that the community will continue to will be like that because it it has attracted people like that and it has put off people not like that so I wanted to show that you don't actually have to be like that you can be like that if you want to be but you also don't have to be Mm -hmm. and so I felt that teaching math to art students was more aligned with that and so finally after I took it's funny I took three years of leave at the beginning of my permanent job I took three years of leave at the end of it as well and and so I didn't resign completely until I had really established my new career. So I teach part-time at the School of the Art Institute. 
I have written more books. I do a lot of public speaking, um, but I'm largely freelance now, which means that I am really in control of my destiny. Mm-hmm. I'm not beholden to any particular person. I'm not beholden to the politics of an institution. I'm not beholden to the approval of any individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a amazingly, first of all, it's a very, very enjoyable position to be in after having felt bullied, excluded, and uh, mm-hmm. unappreciated in an institution. It's also, I recognize that it's a very privileged position to be in. And so I feel it is absolutely morally incumbent upon me to use that position to help others who don't have those freedoms and don't have that voice. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, um, it occurred to me when you were offered the position teaching, as you said, abstract art, I'm not, sorry, abstract math to art students, do you feel like your life at that moment actually prepared you for it? Because you'd always been with the musicians. You were comfortable. That space was not foreign to you. Yes, I do think so in the way. It's definitely one of those, there's one of those um, cheesy sayings about success is opportunity and preparation or something, isn't it? And um, yes, the opportunity came up and I did feel I was really prepared for it. And a lot of people say to me, it must be really hard teaching math to art students. I go, no, it's really easy. It's really, <laughs> it's really the most rewarding thing because they want to think. Mm-hmm. The thing that I always mm-hmm. found difficult about teaching math majors was that they just want to get the right answer and get an A. And I had to work so hard to persuade them to be interested in thinking rather than in getting the right answer and moving on. And because the whole education system has encouraged them to get the right answer as fast as possible. It's all about speed, getting 100% and moving on to the next level as fast as possible. And I don't like any of those things. And I don't think any of those things are consistent with good mathematical thinking or indeed good thinking or good humans or good anything except good grades in a traditional education system. And so that to me was much harder work together with having to teach a curriculum that was handed to me by other people. Because when you teach calculus, certainly whenever I taught those things, it was part of a huge kind of system. And you have to slide into that system and make sure that the students are prepared for the next part of that system and stay lined up with the other parts of that system. Whereas when you're teaching math at art school, you're totally off on a limb and it, you're not part of any central kind of structure you're just some fun on the side basically so I can do anything I like as long as it's I feel it's mathematically worthwhile and as long as the students feel it is and so it's it's really dream teaching also there are no grades hmm. <laughs> so this might be an unanswerable question but tell us about a normal day if there is such a thing oh yeah it kind of is an unanswerable <laughs> question <laughs> Uh, and of course, then there was COVID and then everything became abnormal in different ways. And so before COVID, a normal day would consist of, I always have many projects running concurrently. And um, that will involve teaching, giving talks, doing research, writing papers, writing articles, um, either writing a book or editing a book, um, maybe preparing for a concert, um, maybe doing something like refereeing a paper, reviewing a book, all those things, come, um, and maybe some travel. And so if it's a travel day, then of course you travel. But then on other days, I spend some time doing each of those things in parallel so that I'm not just working on one thing at a time. So I tend to start the day by doing some research, dr- dreaming, because the dreaming 
gets infected by the realities of a normal day. So I try to do that before becoming bogged down by the reality of life and then moving on to writing and then moving on to things that are a bit more logistical and preparing talks is very time consuming if if you do it well mm-hmm. if you do it badly it's not quite time consuming at all it's like teach, <laughs> teaching badly is very easy and teaching well is extremely difficult <laughs> um and so preparing talks takes a very long time um then then there was covid and then there were also um some more traumatic things that happened to me because in the last few years I have had a whole series of miscarriages mm-hmm. and um and have been in this year dealing with the eventual grief of definitely not being able to have children and so that actually takes up quite a long time every day because Mm-hmm. I know that having children is very time consuming. And for many women, that what's difficult is balancing, juggling the demands of looking after a family and also having a job. But in fact, dealing with grief and trauma is it, it's time consuming. And so that, that takes up quite a few hours of my day at the moment. This ends part one of our two-part conversation with Dr. Eugenia Chang. Please join us for part two in the next episode of Count Me In with Del and Deanna. Count Me In with Del and Deanna is produced by the talented Aidan Martin, music created by Casey Fenster, and podcast image by Victoria Robinson.